Good morning. You know, we use that word good a lot. I was thinking about that this week as I was preparing for this message, how often we say good. Good morning. Good pencil. Good vacation. Good day. We, we, we use it quite a lot, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But before we go to the word, Lord, shall we just say a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your presence here with us, and we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for this series on the fruit of the Spirit and what you're teaching us, Lord, of the character and the fruits that you want us to produce, Lord, by the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we look to you, Lord, because we can't do anything of ourselves, and we pray for your help in time of need, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're on the... On the sixth fruit, okay, the sixth fruit of the Spirit, so six out of nine, and this is goodness. If, if I can, sometimes we, we lump together kindness and goodness together. If I can at least maybe switch them around and say, this message on goodness is like kindness part one, or let's call it goodness part one, and last week's message on kindness we'll call goodness part two, right? Because what I'd like to, like to show you, hopefully from, from the Word of God, is that how kindness is sort of like a subset of goodness, a, a little aspect of goodness as well. And goodness is a very large or all-encompassing thing, but we're going to look at, a little, look at goodness in a little different uh, aspect or a different way today. So we're looking again in Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. And verse 23, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And we are here now at at goodness. So the question is, what is goodness? Webster's Dictionary defines goodness as the quality or state of being good. Okay? Now then if you go to good and try to look up the definition of good, you'll find so many different definitions for good. Right? Even throughout the Bible, as I just mentioned as well right now, is that you'd find so many different usages and um, ways that this word good is used all throughout Scripture. Now, the interesting thing um, about goodness is that it has a very unique Greek word. This Greek word for goodness that's found here in Galatians chapter 5 is a word that's found only four times in the New Testament. Okay, four times in the New Testament and only in Paul's letters. It's found 13 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so 13 and four, 17 times in the Bible. That's it. You don't find this word used outside of the Bible. It's not used in secular Greek. It's not used in classical Greek. It's a very, very biblical Christian term right, or Hebrew term, this word, and it's, the word is agathasune, okay, agathasune, it's, it's a Greek word, it's very, it's, I, I find it so unique just because it's not used outside of scripture, okay, the only references you actually find it in, in classical Greek is literature that refer back to scripture, okay, otherwise it's a very, very unique uh, biblical Word. So to determine the, the meaning of this word is actually a little, little bit dif- difficult because you don't have a context of its use in normal Greek language and normal usage, right? You don't, we don't see that because it's not used outside of the Bible. 
So part of the, the definition or the meaning of goodness overlaps with kindness, as we studied last week, right? Goodness as being kind and generous to others, how God is, when we say God is good to us, we have this understanding that God is kind and generous, you know, towards us. So there's this, there's this meaning of goodness that comes from kindness, right, of God being good, and it overlaps. And remember, we talked about how the fruit of the Spirit, they don't grow individually in individual silos, but what do they do? They grow together. There's an overlap as well, as we studied with some of these fruits of the Spirit, right? There's an overlap in some of these things, and so we see that these fruits are growing in our lives together. But the part of goodness that I'd like to focus on this morning is not the action of love or the act of love, which we studied last week in kindness, but actually the moral character of a good God, okay? The moral character of a good God, right? So the goodness of God is actually his reflection of righteousness, uprightness, integrity, his blameless nature. And God also calls us to goodness and wants this fruit of the spirit of goodness to be produced in our lives through the help of the Holy Spirit, thereby leading to a life of integrity, uprightness, and purity of heart. So, Here's a definition that I'll, that I'll give to you, okay? Goodness, the quality of a blameless, upright, pure, righteous, and generous character, okay? And contextually for us, it is a spirit-created moral excellence, okay? It's a spirit-created moral excellence, right? Something that the Holy Spirit produces in us, right, that helps us to live moral, good, upright, righteous lives, okay? Now, there, again, there's this overflow with kindness because part of goodness is, yes, the act of love. Part of goodness is the act of kindness. Part of goodness is a good God that does good things for us, right? So I want to look at first, uh, as you can see in your notes there, the, what is actually the goodness of God? Now, we know that God is the origin of all good things. In Genesis 1, we read about how God created the heavens and the earth, and it says that he looked at it, and he, God looked at it, and he said it was good, right? So all good things are made from God. In the book of Psalms, we see as well uh, a few different times. I just picked two verses, but there's tons of verses like this that talks about, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. You are good and do only good. And there's a lot of these verses throughout scripture, especially in the Psalms that talk about God's goodness. Now, there's a time in the Old Testament when Moses asked to see God's glory, He wanted to see the fullness of God's glory, or in other words, we can relate God's glory to God's character, God's nature, right? Who God actually is. And so Moses asked, can I see your glory? Can I see the fullness of your character, the the fullness of your essence, of your nature, of who God you really are? And so in Genesis chapter, in Exodus chapter 33, it says here, Moses asked, then show me your glorious presence. And the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness. I will make the fullness of my character, the fullness of my righteousness, the fullness of who I am as a just, upright, holy God. I'm going to make all of that pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. This amazing experience that Moses had to see the glory of God, to see the fullness of God's goodness pass by him. 
so that Moses could get a glimpse and get an idea of God's glory, God's nature, and God's character. When you say, or when I say, God is good, what do we really mean? It means that God is just, right, trustworthy, generous, without deception. He is full of integrity, true to his word. When we say that God is good, we are implying that he is a person that we can depend on. Yes, there are acts of, of, of kindness. Yes, there are acts of love that he does towards us to show his goodness. But we also understand when we say that God is good, that he is a just and an upright God, that if we go to him, he will judge righteously. If we go to him, he will do what is right. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, change from one day to another. He doesn't say, okay, on one day these are my rules, and the next day these are my other rules. No. God's character is firm and sure and steadfast. In Deuteronomy it says, he is a rock, his deeds are perfect, everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong, how just and upright he is. See, this is God's nature, and this is God's character, and this is this aspect of goodness, of God being a good God, yes, that he does kind acts, but throughout the Bible, we see him doing other things as well that we might not, in our definition of kindness, call that kindness. When, when Jesus came and he cleansed the temple, he came in, we read, and how he came in, he came into the, the house of God, and he said, you have made this house of God into a den of thieves, and his righteous anger was there so that he overthrew the tables and cleansed the temple. Our, in our definition of kindness, that didn't seem very kind. But it was agathasune, goodness. It was God's goodness to come into his house and cleanse his house. It is God's goodness when he comes down upon us and he corrects us and he rebukes us and he tells us, stop doing this. When he calls us out on things that we shouldn't be doing, that is God's goodness. Remember, goodness is, is, is a pretty large definition here. There is an aspect of kindness when we say, Lord, I need this and he provides for us. Lord, can you bless me in this way? And he blesses us. But there are other times when God comes and he says, no, what you're doing is wrong. I need to correct you. I need to put you back on the right way. That is God's goodness. Why? Because he wants to do us good for our final day. He leads us in a path that we might not like, but he knows it is good for us. We might not call it God's kindness. Lord, I wish I could have this other pathway. Lord, I wish I could have a life that, like this other person. Lord, can you be kind to me and bless me in this way? But he says, no, my goodness is much better. And he leads us in a pathway that's good for us, even though we might not always like it, right? He is always faithful. He doesn't change. In Timothy, we read, if we are unfaithful, when we fail, when we falter, when we sin, when we don't meet up to the standard, yet he remains faithful. He remains true to his character. He says, he, for he cannot deny who he is. He will be true to his word. He will be true to his promises. He will be true to his character, to his attributes, and to his goodness. We can completely trust in him and depend on him because he is unwavering, unchanging, unending. He's totally and completely really the opposite of us. Because how many times we change, we falter, we do other things, right? And we don't stay true to our word. We break our promises. Maybe we lie and cheat and do this and that. We fail God in so many ways, but he remains faithful, right? Speaking about Jesus, again, talking about God's goodness in Acts chapter 10, 
And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We read here how Jesus went about doing good. Yes, Jesus healed the sick. That was an act of kindness. Yes, Jesus uh, cleansed the leper. That was an act of kindness. But Jesus also rebuked his disciples, and that was God's goodness. And Jesus cleansed the temple, and that was God's goodness. And in actual fact, it was God's kindness, right? We just don't like to call it kindness. We only like to call things kindness that, oh, feels good. Oh, that's nice. I got a blessing, right? But God's goodness is to bless us in our final end, even if we have to walk through a hard and a difficult pathway, right? God's goodness is to fulfill his word to us, to complete his word for all of humanity as well to be true to himself, to be true to his character. And sometimes those things are not easy. Sometimes those things are, not hard, are easy to hear or to accept. His righteous integrity and his upright character sometimes demands hard actions. His righteous integrity and his upright character sometimes demands hard actions that we might not like. But friends, it's the goodness of God. When Peter went to Jesus and told Jesus, you're not going to suffer, Jesus. Jesus was predicting his death and his sufferings. And Peter came and said, Lord, no, this can't happen. Instead, what did Jesus do? He rebuked Peter. And he said, Peter, you're seeking the easy pathway. Don't seek that easy pathway. Right? Jesus knew that hard pathway to fulfill the will of God. It was going to be difficult. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asked, the, he asked his father, he said, Father, if it is possible, please let this cup pass from me. Is it possible that there's another way for this to happen? Is it possible that somehow I can accomplish your will, but just not in this way? But then he said, not my will, but your will be done. That was God's goodness. The nature and character of God in Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, right? It was God's goodness to Peter that he rebuked him and corrected him. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Bible says that he could have called 12 legions of angels to come down and save him. To, he could have called all of these angels to, to come and, and do something to, to intercede for him maybe not 12, I think it was just legion, a legion of angels to come down and do something for him while he was hanging on the cross. But, he, but the word of God says that he didn't do that. Why? Because being the righteous person he was, being the man of integrity that he was, being the fullness of God's goodness that he was, he wanted to complete and fulfill the will of God, even though it was a very difficult path. Jesus was a good person, and the goodness of God in him was to do good. That could have been healing somebody, but it was also suffering for all of humanity. Jesus showed kindness and goodness in his ministry when he was here in this world, right? The, the word, if you remember, that we looked at last week for kindness was keristotes, okay? So when Jesus came into the temple and saw a man that was sick, and healed him. That was Keristotes to, to heal him, to, to show kindness. Not even him asking, but Jesus went and healed him. But when Jesus went into the same temple and he cleansed the temple and he cast all these money changers out and overthrew their tables, that was Agathasune, goodness. The goodness of God. And sometimes Jesus will need to come into our lives and overthrow some tables, right? Sometimes when we are going in the wrong path, Jesus needs to come by and fix things up. And we might say, Lord, I don't want that. Just bless me with a new job. 
Lord, I don't want that. Just give me a new house. Lord, I don't want... But because God is good, and as we sang today, and we said, God, you're so good, what, what does that mean? That means in the hills, when things are going great, we say God is good. That means in the valleys, when things are not going our way, we say God is good. Because it's his nature that if we trust in him completely, we know that even if we're going through suffering, even if we're going through pain, even if we're going through grief, even if we're going through heartache, we can say, God, you are good because I trust in your unfailing nature and character of who you are, that you are righteous, just, and true to your word and true to your promises. You will fulfill every good thing for me, maybe not the way I want it, most likely not the way I want it, but definitely the way that you want it because you want to do good to me. Can we see that? Can we acknowledge that? That God, you are a good God. Regardless of how my life lives out, regardless of how my life plays out, regardless of if I face a sickness, if I face a trial, if I face a problem at work, a problem at school, a difficulty in my family, I'm still going to say, God, you're good because I'm acknowledging the goodness of your character. I'm acknowledging the fullness of who you are as a righteous and good God, as a righteous and upright God that I can come to you and know that you are just and true and faithful and will not deny yourself. You will complete everything that you have said towards me. But in order to understand God's goodness, I think the other thing we need to understand is the sinfulness of humanity, the sinfulness of man, right? Romans chapter, chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 says, For every, everyone has sinned, We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sin. Before before listing the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, before that happened, right before that in Galatians 5, there's a whole list of sinful works of the flesh. And it's not only there, it's not the only place that it's found in other portions of Scripture. We find a whole list of these works of the flesh or sins. You know, the, the, the problem today is that we all have an opinion of what is right and wrong. Instead of viewing our actions through the lens of our Creator, we all have an opinion of what is right and wrong. Instead of understanding God's goodness, which is His righteousness, His uprightness, His truth, we make our own standards of right and wrong. We make our own standards of truth. We have our own opinions and feelings of things. And so we avoid the depth of our sin and pass it off as something that's not really bad. You know, there is a, uh, there's a half gospel that's being preached today. There's a half gospel that's being propagated in the world today as well. And it's being propagated in the world today to be politically correct, in order not to offend anyone, in order not to be considered bigoted or hateful or mean. If we highlight what God counts as sin, then we're being mean. If we preach the truth, then we're being closed-minded. If we stand for what God's character is, then maybe we're going to be considered unjust when it actually couldn't be further from the truth because the creator's character is full of goodness. To be kind, but also to be true and to be holy and to be pure, to be just, upright, and righteous. It is the fullness of goodness. God's condemnation of our sin, his rebuke for our actions of iniquity, his judgment on our wayward life is actually his goodness. But many times now, we don't want to talk about sin. Many times now, we don't want to say, you know, this is wrong. 
but actually God's condemnation for sin, his judgment on sin, is actually his goodness towards us to take us out of that lifestyle and to bring us into a liberty, to bring us into a place where we can enjoy him and enjoy his fullness. The half gospel that is preached today is come to Jesus just as you are. He loves you and cares for you and wants to help you. Does that sound good? It's the half gospel. Come to Jesus just the way that you are because he loves you and cares for you and wants to help you. It sounds good up until there's good, but it's not the end. It's just the half. The other half, that full gospel, is that we come to Jesus with an acknowledgement that we are sinners. If we say come to Jesus, he'll accept you the way that you are. That's true. But he loves you too much and his goodness is too great to leave you the way that you are. Right? We come to Jesus with an acknowledgement of our sins. If we come to Jesus, it means that we are, uh, we are admitting and confessing, yes, I've done something wrong. If I say I've done something wrong, that means I'm a sinner, that I've fallen from God's standard. And if we're sinners, we've transgressed the law of God. And this aspect of sin is often left out, but it's so essential and so important of our understanding of God's goodness. He is good because he accepts us the way that we are, and he loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. And that's why we need to understand God's goodness. Isaiah 64 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like, a, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Even the good that we try to do many times are coded with selfish intentions and motives, right? Jeremiah says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. See, our heart is so deceptive. Even in a good act, that we try to do, even in a kind act we try to do. Maybe it's coded with selfish intentions and motives. Who's looking? I want to make sure. Make sure everyone sees. All right, now I'll do the act. Or maybe we do something because we want the praise of others. And so many times our heart can be so deceptive. Oh, that we might understand and acknowledge our wickedness, our sinfulness, so that we might receive God's goodness in our lives. I want to share with you a quote from Tim Keller. I read this this past week, and since Wednesday, I have not stopped thinking about this. This has, like, dominated my thoughts since Wednesday. And I've thought about this and thought about this. I've cried about this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you know that when we look at our sinfulness, when we think, and I was looking at myself this week, and I was thinking all the ways that I've sinned against God, I've hurt God, uh, when I've sinned against other people, my faults and my failures, and I think of all of that, and when I think of that, I think I have not even come close to how sinful I am. Because as he says here, we are more sinful and flawed in, and in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And if we can come to that acknowledgement to say, yes, I am a sinner, yes, I have failed, and even what I acknowledge and even what I say, it's not even coming close to actually who I really am. Because I am so wretched, I am so wicked, I have fallen so far away from God, the intentions and motives of my heart are so deceptive and so unclean. 
But yet, this is the beauty of it. That the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You all know I love to preach on hope. If you ask me, Daniel, do you want to preach a message on something? I'll say, yes, I'll preach on hope. And when I was thinking about that, and I thought, and I was reading this quote, and I thought, the amount of, of hope that I've thought about, the amount of hope that I've preached about, the amount of hope that I hold on to for my own life and for everyone here and for our, for our church and for the body of Christ, the amount of hope that has come through my mind and that I believed and loved and trusted doesn't even come close to how much hope Jesus has for us. It doesn't even come close to all the hope that God has for us, that he'll do something amazing for us. I don't know, this, this, this thought has just been, I've been thinking about this this whole week. We are so sinful, more than we ever dared believe, but there's so much hope, more than we can even dare think of, because there's hope in Christ, right? There's hope in Christ. Now, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't seem fair and just, right? That you could just come to a God and he'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you. Does it seem fair? If, God, if, if God's nature, remember we're talking about God's goodness, if God's goodness and nature is that he's a fair and a just God, he's upright, he's righteous, he will do the right thing. Does it seem fair that a sinner would come to him and say, hey, I'm a sinner, and then he just says, you're forgiven? Does that sound fair? No, for a righteous and true and a just God, that is totally unfair. How could, we, how could we trust in somebody like that, that just takes somebody that's guilty and says, you're forgiven? It's because Jesus came before that to take our place, to pay the penalty. So when we come to him and we say, Lord, please forgive me, that righteous and true and holy God that demands justice, that demands punishment says, Jesus has paid it all for you already. And then he gives us new life. That's the beautiful thing that God does for us. And if we come to him today, he offers that opportunity to taste and be filled with his goodness when he condemns sin, but then he shows his love and mercy towards us. That's God's goodness. That's the fullness of his goodness. To say, I'm a righteous God and I condemn sin, but I am a loving God and I offer forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the essence of the gospel. And that's what he offers freely for all of us. Now, going back to goodness, the question is, how can, how can I grow in goodness? And I just want to quickly just say three things about growing in goodness. I think the first thing is that we need to be filled with the life of Christ. As we live this life with a realization that we are complete sinners in need of God, then we need more of Jesus to come and fill our lives. John 15, verse 5 says, these are the words of Jesus. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, right? So part of being filled with the life of Christ is being filled with the Word of God. We must be students of the Word of God. We should spend time in the Word of God, meditate on the Word of God, read the Word of God, apply the Word of God to our lives. We are living in a time and age where biblical literacy is very low. And that's why we're living in a time and age that people can just quote things and say, oh, well, Jesus said this or Jesus said that without really a knowledge of what the Word of God says. And that's why we need to immerse ourselves into, into Scripture. There was a study done in Canada in 2013 uh, called Confidence, Conversion, and Community, uh, Bible Engagement in Canada. And here are some statistics from that. 14% of Canadians read the Bible at least once 
not a week, but at least once a month. 60% of Canadian Christians think the scriptures of all major world religions teach essentially the same things. Those who do, not li- who do are likely to disregard the teachings of these texts and find a common ethic of social place behind the text. That's 60% of Christians, right, will believe that. 18% of Canadians strongly agree the Bible is the word of God, which is actually down from 35% in 1996. It's a, it's a rapid decline. 23% of Christians in Canada strongly agree that the Bible is relevant to modern life, right? That's not 23% of just Canadians. That's 23% of Christians believe that the Bible is relevant to modern life. I wonder if we were to ask that question here, maybe I should have put up a a poll here and, and, and had you respond anonymously, right, to these questions and see what kind of percentage would come out. 21% of Christians in Canada reflect on the meaning of the Bible for their lives at least a few times a week, right? So about one-fifth of the people that might come and maybe hear a message maybe during the week, they'll reflect on that. 11% of Christians in Canada talk to others about the Bible outside of religious services at least once a week. It's a pretty low percentage. Do you know what I'm going to talk about right now? Because of that stat? Oh, you should have... Yes, all right, okay. 11% of Christians in Canada talk to others about the Bible outside the religious services. I want to encourage you, right, be the 11%, okay? And let's up that percentage here at Unionville Alliance Church. I don't have my card here with me right now, but there's cards outside. Alpha, invite somebody to Alpha. Talk to somebody about, about Jesus. Invite them to come and have a conversation about the Christian faith. So it should be higher, right? So that's why... That's why that's why in, in the world today, many people just assume things of the Bible, of what the Bible says, and try to say, well, the, doesn't the Bible say this, or didn't Jesus do this, or didn't Jesus do that, but out of context and out of what actually Jesus was trying to say. So I want to encourage everyone, study the Bible, know what it says. Let the words of God be the standard for our life, right? I think we spend more time maybe on social media. I'm probably guilty of this as well, right? We spend more time on social media maybe watching TV, sporting events, and all these other things more than we actually do our Bible, right? So we did a series on the Bible earlier this year, and we went through a Bible reading plan, so I want to encourage you to keep reading the Word of God, keep reading the Bible. As the Word of God comes into us, as we read the Bible, then we get an understanding, a greater understanding of God's goodness, of God's character, of God's nature, of who actually God is, right? And it's not just all about love, but understanding who the fullness of God is, right? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for, to teach us what is true. Because we're living in a day when truth is relevant, is, is relative, right? Truth has become very subjective, right? And so we have to be, we have to understand what the word of God says, which is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in others, Right? <laughs> We're, I, I read my Bible, so I know exactly how I can tell other people how they're wrong. No, it says there, right? What is wrong in our lives, in my life, what I'm doing wrong, to guide me. In the, this is God's goodness, right? God's goodness is not just about that kind of, we talked about that last week. It was great, right? 
Kind act, kindness, the action of love, awesome, amazing. But God's goodness is also to correct us and put us in the right way. God's goodness is to lead us in that pathway, right? It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is, what is right. I was talking to a group of young adults recently, not from here, okay? Talking to a group of young adults, and I was talking to them about a hot-button topic in culture today. And every single one of them had formed their opinion on values that culture and society taught them. I would say almost everyone in that group was Christians. But every single one of them, when we were talking about this very hot button topic in culture, they had formed their opinion based on what culture and society says today and not what the Bible says. And so at the end, they said, well, what's your opinion? And I told them, and I shared to them from the word of God, and at the end, they, they said, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. But they had not seen it before in that way, Right? Another thing that will help us is, to, is for the life of Christ to, uh, to help us grow in the life of Christ is to guard our heart and our mind because our thoughts and our desires are the beginning of our actions and our habits. Our thoughts and our desires are the beginning of our actions and our habits. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we should be careful what we put into our hearts. Philippians 4 and verse 8 says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is? true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The second thing that I think that's important for us in order to grow in goodness is to be courageous in our convictions, right? Be courageous in our convictions. Again, we're living in a day and time when people don't have convictions, when we easily change our opinion in order to fit with the crowd and, and so that people won't make fun of us or persecute us. But Paul clearly tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so if we desire to live a godly life, many times we might end up being on the side of the minority. Many times we might end up being on the side where people will look at us and say, well, why are you saying that? Well, it's because we are standing for God's goodness. There was a man, his name, he was an Anglican priest. His name was Trevor Huddleston. He was known for his anti-apartheid conviction when he lived in South Africa during the time of apartheid at that time. He greatly influenced Desmond Tutu, who was the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the post-apartheid South America. He was appointed by, Desmond Tutu was appointed by Nelson Mandela. But Desmond Tutu, when he was nine years old, he saw Huddleston walking by him and his mom and as he walked by him, this Anglican priest, right, Trevor Huddleston, he tipped his hat to Desmond Tutu's mom. And that shocked that young boy, being nine years old. He thought, how does this white man tip his hat to my mom, who is a black woman, who is a domestic worker? And that greatly impacted his life. A few years later, Desmond Tutu was admitted into hospital for, for TB. He was in hospital for 20 months. And this Anglican, Anglican uh, bishop, Trevor Huddleston, came and visited him frequently. He had such an impact, not only on Desmond Tutu, but on many people's lives. His, his reputation for anti-apartheid uh, teachings was well known, and he stood for his conviction because he knew that we were all created with dignity and in the image of God. He made so many unknown people feel special, wanted, and loved. 
He was the, a founding member of the anti-apartheid movement, and then he was the vice president in 1961, and then he became the president for many years as well. But his kindness, compassion, and goodness was well known because he was courageous in his conviction. And there's a bust in England, in a city in England. It looks like that. It's a bust of Huddleston. And written there is a quote by Nelson Mandela that said, no white person has done more for South Africa than Trevor Huddleston. The impact that he left because he was courageous for his conviction, right? I think it'd be good for us to be able to sit down and write out what our convictions are. It would be good for us to sit down and, and, and to be able to say, what am I going to stand for? What are the teachings in the word of God? What are the, the convictions that I have that I'm going to stand firm for? Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, he wrote down what was called his 70 resolutions. I wanted to share a few of them with you. He sat down as a, as a, as a young man. I believe he was still a teenager or in his early 20s when he did this. He sat down and he, said, and he wrote 70 statements of how he was going to live his life. Jonathan Edwards is considered one of the most brilliant minds ever in the United States. He was a pastor and a theologian and influenced many people during the, the Great Awakening in, in the United States. But here are a couple of them. He says, Resolved if I take delight in it as a gratif gratification of pride or vanity or any such account immediately to throw it by. So some of this is in a little bit of old English, okay? So bear with me, right? So part of this is he's saying that if I take gratification in any, any of these things, I want to cast it off immediately. Number 28, he said, resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. He sat down as a young man and wrote that out. And he would read this weekly. He would read all these 70 resolutions every week to make sure that he stood by his convictions, right? Number 34 says, resolved in narrations never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity or the pure and simple truth, right? Number 47 is interesting. He says, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to deny whatever is not most agreeable to a good and universally sweet and benevolent, quiet, peaceable, contented, easy, compassionate, generous. He's really covering all the bases here. Humble, meek, modest, submissive, obliging, diligent, and industrious, charitable, even patient, moderate, forgiving, sincere temper or disposition or attitude. That's the kind that he wanted. And to do at all times with, with such a temper would lead me to examine strictly every week whether I have done so. Right? Look at 48. 48 says, Resolved constantly with the utmost niceness and diligence and with the strictest scrutiny to be looking into the state of my soul that I may know whether I have truly, and, truly an interest in Christ or no. And when I come to die, I may not have any negligence respecting this to repent of. And number 70, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. I wonder if we could do something like that to sit down and write out what our convictions are, how I'm going to live, how I'm going to take this life seriously. We're living in a very pluralistic society where it becomes so easy to compromise our convictions and there's so many different things that can come along our way. Rick Warren says, an opinion is something that you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. An opinion is something that you hold. Conviction is something that holds you. Goodness is about standing for what is right, holy, true, just, righteous, upright, but also standing against what is evil, sinful, and against the word of God. 
just like Jesus did when he cleansed the temple. Third John chapter 1, verse 11 says, follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. Part of this goodness is in relation to God because it's his very nature and character. Goodness is not just about kind actions, although that is one aspect of it, but it's about being brave, bold, courageous in the face of evil and sin and iniquity and unjust behavior. It might not be kind from a naturalistic point of view, but it's good. Edmund Burke said something that has been repeated often, and it's a very famous quote. It says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. It's not always the popular thing to do, and it might make people hate you or say evil things about you, right? And you might be the outsider. You might be called like a Jesus freak or a fanatic, right? But Peter says, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. Here is your example, and you must follow his steps. Christ has given us an example, right? Christ has left for us an example of standing for truth. Jesus was was mocked. He was made fun of. He was criticized. He was rejected, despised, beaten. He was crucified. He stood for the truth of the word of God. He didn't compromise He died for it. We are called to follow in his steps as well. Lastly, and I'll just close with this, is that God is calling us to grow in goodness, to live a life of sincerity, honesty, and transparency. Live sincerely, live honestly, live transparently. There's a story of of an emperor. This emperor was coming near to the end of his reign. He was getting old. And instead of passing on the empire to one of his sons or to one of his family members or to one of his aides, he decided to call all the young people in the, in the kingdom to his palace. And he said, I'm going to appoint one of you to be the new emperor. And they thought, wow, he's going to appoint one of us to be the new emperor. And so they came to the palace and he had a special seed for each person. And he gave that special seed to every one of those young people. And he said, go home, plant it, water it, let it grow. And in a year's time, I want you to bring back your plant or your flower or whatever it is. And I'm going to look at it. And then I'm going to pick the new emperor. And so this one young man, right, uh, he went home. And uh, he started to, to plant that, that seed and put it in a pot and water it and everything. Give it a lot of sunlight. Nothing was happening. After a few weeks, his friends were talking, oh, my plant is growing big and all of these things. Oh, look at my beautiful plant. And he's looking at it as nothing. After a few months, he changes it around, puts new soil and does whatever he can to make it grow. Nothing is happening. It's dead. After a year, finally, this young man came back and he saw all the other young people that were there. They brought these, like some of them were huge plants and they brought them. They're all in this one room. And he was so ashamed that he was bringing in just his pot that had his seed without a plant. And he stood at the back of the room and the emperor came in and he was looking and he saw all these wonderful plants and everything like that. But he saw this young man at the back that had his pot with nothing there. And he called him to the front and he looked at the rest of the room and he said, this is your new emperor. And they were shocked and they couldn't believe, how does this guy, this guy couldn't even grow a plant. How are you supposed to run a, run a kingdom? And then the emperor said, I gave you all seeds that were boiled and that couldn't grow. And I wanted to see who would come back 
and tell me honestly that it didn't grow. And there was young, one young man that did. Everyone else, they picked other seeds and made their plant look so wonderful and beautiful. And, 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 and they thought, we have to bring something that looks good. Otherwise, the emperor is not going to pick me. How many times do we compromise our convictions? And instead of living sincerely and honestly and transparently, we make a compromise just to fit the needs of others. Psalm 15, we read this at the beginning. Keisha read this in the scripture reading. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. When we think about goodness or someone being good, it's the absence of wrong motives. It's the absence of deception. It's the absence of lies. It's the absence of evil intentions. And the Lord has called us to live sincerely, honestly, and transparently, right? Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. If you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work, right? Christ has left us an example. We'll ask the worship team to come up. I'll close with this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul, speaking to Timothy, said, Be an example to all believers in what you say, in what you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. God's called us to live like that, and I think as we live honestly, sincerely, transparently, then God will help us to grow in his goodness because that's the very nature of God. He is sincere. He is honest. He is transparent. We know who he is. He is just, and he is right. As we get ready to sing, I'll, I'll close with the story of a guy named Ruben Gonzalez. Ruben Gonzalez played racquetball, and if you don't play racquetball, you would not know the name Ruben Gonzalez. But if you have played racquetball or have followed racquetball at all, Ruben Gonzalez is like the LeBron James of racquetball, right? He, he was uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame in the year 2000. He was actually one of the oldest players to finish number one in their rankings, right? I don't have a lot of time, so I won't tell you too much about him and all of his accomplishments. You can go home and Google it and, and find out a little bit about Ruben Gonzalez. But in 1985, he surprised the whole world because he was on his, he had not won anything. He was on his first pro tour and he was uh, facing a guy named Marty Hogan who was the, the perennial champ, right? And they were in a five game battle, okay? It was two games apiece and Hogan was serving and he was up 10 to eight and it was, up to, it was an 11 point final. All he needed was one more point. But Gonzalez in this, in this one point, it was a furious rally, and he ended it with a forehand that was so hard, and, and, and the referee called it as a good shot, so Gonzalez would have gotten the serve, and he had the momentum, and he was getting ready to win it. But what happened next surprised everyone, that this young man, he called to the ref, and he said, ref, no, the ball hit the ground before it hit the wall, and he called a point on himself, which ended up losing the whole match for him. And no one could believe it. This was unheard of, right? And, the, and then after that, in a few months, this is Racquetball Magazine, 1985. He was on the cover. Because they were wondering, why would this guy do such a thing? That's what they wanted to question him. They wanted to ask him, why would he, he do such a thing, right? And his reply was this. It was the only thing I could do to maintain my integrity. 
in such a small thing as a sport in comparison to the larger questions that we have in our life of our integrity. May the Lord help us to live that life that emulates God's goodness. Shall we stand and we'll sing.